0: I'd like you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8 in the English Standard Version of the Bible. Romans 12, verses 1 to 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Last week, I mentioned that part of the problem with understanding the concept of spiritual gifts within the body of Christ is that we often misunderstand exactly what are these gifts. The conventional view essentially suggests that these spiritual gifts are special abilities given to Christians at their conversion for the purpose of the building up of the body of Christ. I countered that notion last time, noting that this is problematic because it can potentially put an undue emphasis upon the gift itself being given rather than an emphasis on the giver of those gifts, being, of course, Jesus Himself through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Because of this, it can also tend, I think, to frustrate individual Christians by motivating them to attempt to determine the exact nature of their gift or gifts. Many Christians have, with this kind of emphasis, I believe, become paralyzed in their ministry to others because they haven't quite come to know and then to utilize that giftedness so they often become spiritually inert in their ministries. The other extreme could also, of course, be true and that is that Christians who believe that they've located their giftedness could then uh, tend to look down upon others who don't have the same kind or degree of giftedness that they believe they possess and could then become very proud of it now what are we to make of this confusion well remember the flow of thought here in Romans 12 just after telling us how to be a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice as we just read Paul reminds these Roman believers in verse 3 of chapter 12 that they must not in any spiritual endeavor think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. The main reason I believe he does this is that because when you consider the concept of our mutual ministry within the body, you can't then turn around and become proud or arrogant toward fellow believers when you're at the same time attempting to minister to them. There's incongruity there. There's inconsistency there, and Paul, at the very outset of this very practical section of the epistle to the Romans, beginning right off the bat in Romans 12, is telling us to be humble in our mutuality of ministry. And of course, you know that he says in verse 3 that we are to think with sober judgment. Each person doing so according to the measure of faith or the standard with which we have all been blessed by our common faith in Jesus Christ. He's in essence, I believe, saying that we're all on equal footing when it comes to our common faith in the Lord Jesus. And therefore, none of us must assume that when it comes to ministering to one another and indeed ministering out of that trust in Jesus, we all of a sudden are thinking of ourselves in a quite superior way to one another. Looking down on others when we assume that they are not ministerially our equal. Instead, Paul says, we must think of them more highly than ourselves. There's no room for pride at the table of grace. No room. Our common faith demands that we slay pride, that we kill pride, and that we humbly love our fellow believers. And all that Paul will say, even through the rest of chapter 12 and on into the other practical sections of this letter, will all be under the banner of love, humble love. And that's what we must continually remind ourselves. That's the proper context for understanding what Paul teaches us even in this next section. And so therefore, with that introductory idea behind us, we turn now to the actual text of Romans 12, verses 4 to 8. And I want to show you from these verses three Pauline expressions, three Pauline expressions of our relationship to one another in the body of Christ. Three expressions that Paul wants us to know underneath this humble banner of love toward one another. The first one is this. The diversified functioning of the body. The diversified functioning of the body. That's in verse 4. Secondly, and we'll look at both 1 and 2 very, very quickly, maybe far too quickly, even though we've covered them in some detail last time, verses 4 and 5. The second, number... To the diversified excuse me, the unified functioning of the body, verse five, the unified functioning of the body, verse five. And then thirdly and finally, in verses six to eight, the categorized functioning of the body, the categorized functioning of the body. The diversified functioning, the unified functioning and the categorized functioning of the body. Those are the three things that he wants us to know in verses four through eight. Our unity, our diversity, and the categories out of which that kind of functioning should flow. And each of these outline points correspond to the way I believe these verses are actually laid out for us. In fact, look back at verse four. Number one, he says, In that verbal form, we have many members. It's a statement of fact. We have many members. That's talking about the diversification of the functioning of the body among us. And then secondly, he says, though we are many, here's the statement, we are one body in Christ, verse 5, and individually members one of another. That's the unified functioning of the body of Christ. And then thirdly, he says, and, and that's really the way I think it ought to be stated, having gifts that differ. Not a separate sentence, but the same subordinate clause within one sentence. Having gifts that differ. Telling us the various categories of the functioning of the ministries of the body. And so, This is what we are to know about our ministry together as believers in Jesus. And this opens up for us a wonderful insight into how we are actually to understand and then to function together as very, very diverse people, yet unified. Let's look at the first idea here, the diversified functioning of the body, verse 4. The whole context of this passage... Strongly suggests, as I said, the humble, loving response on the part of Christians toward each other. Notice what he says there in verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Function being that word praxis. Sometimes used in even our English context to talk about practice. The function of our ministering to one another. And do you notice he's emphasizing the humble, loving unity which Paul is describing. We have have this one body idea, bouncing off the metaphor of the physical body, for as in one body, the physical body, we have many parts or many members or many units or many limbs and... The members do not have all the same function. That's true. And so true is it among the spiritual body of Christ. We don't have all the same functions. We're not all just alike. There is a differing or diversified function among us. And we saw that very, very clearly last time from verse 4. And that's really all I want to say about that particular one, since we covered that last time, the diversified functioning of the body, because I really, really want to get to this third and I think most crucial point for us. But first, let's look at number two, the unified functioning of the body, verse five. So we, Paul says, though many are one body in Christ, that's the unity even in the midst of our individuality or our diversity we are one body in Christ and he says individually members one of another I think what Paul is teaching us here is that there can be and indeed there is a sense in which we can have genuine diversity within the body of Christ we can celebrate that We can enjoy the diversity among us and yet still have overall unity within that body. It doesn't have to be that diversity cannot operate in the context of some kind of destroyed unity. That's not so. Diversity does not automatically destroy unity. That's the way it is even in a marriage. My wife and I are in so many ways very, very different from one another. We think differently. We often act differently. We have different perspectives. We have different opinions. We have different perceptions. And yet, we are said in the Bible to be one flesh. There is a unity even in the midst of the enjoying of our diversity. Now, do we always enjoy that? No, no. We don't always enjoy that. Is it always easy to affirm the diversity of our union together? No, it's not always easy to do that. But if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're endeavoring to not want to carry out the desires of the flesh, there is every opportunity to actually come to a place as Spirit-controlled Christians where you can, whether in a marriage relationship or in the body of Christ, enjoy your relationship with one another. There can be joy in the midst of the unity because you are actually celebrating the diversity that you have. And I want you to notice that Paul declares that even in the midst of our diversity, there can still be a real sense of our unity because he describes us with these words. Notice verse 5. We are individually members one of another. Oh, that speaks of a Solidity between us. We are members, he says, one of another. You cannot be more organically linked, even as an individual, than to be said, even with our diversity of backgrounds and histories and personalities and tastes and preferences and perceptions, even as well as ministry focuses, when he says here, you are still members one of another. Literally, we are members of each one. Now that, that destroys this concept that there is such diversity in the body, there is such individuality in the body, that we are simply in this thing for ourselves and on our own. It's not true. It's not true. Western Christians are so often guilty of this concept of it's me and my Christian life. It's what I'm doing in my Christian life. And sometimes, maybe even in the context of Romans 12 and this issue of spiritual gifts in the body, it's what I'm doing to minister my giftedness so that my skills can be honed and so that my gifts can be displayed and so that I can do what I'm supposed to be doing in the body. See the challenge? Yes, Paul celebrates, no question about it, the rich diversity of the body, but he hastens to say, even individually though, we are members one of another. And notice he doesn't say we are members one to another. No, he links it up that we are actually members of another. There's an organic unity there. And though we are very different from one another, we are, if we know Jesus Christ, inextricably bound together because we are members, Paul says, of another. Nothing can separate us from one another. Even our very diverse ministerial functions and assignments. And he's banging the drum Of this idea, because it's so easy for Christians, especially even us in our westernized, individualized world, to not understand the corporate dynamic of the body of Christ. And when that's true, we tend to be lone ranger Christians. And that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. We need each other. And even though our roles are different We're bound together by a common unity, a common purpose, and a common goal. And that common goal and purpose and unity is the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith unto a mature man which belongs to the stature of the measure of the fullness of Christ, to borrow Paul's language in Ephesians 4. That's what we are toward each other. And wouldn't this be all the more important for these Roman believers since they met in those house churches? Oh, it would be all the more important that occasionally, if possible, even in the midst of persecution and possible threatenings and even death, that when they were able to get together, if so, privately so, secretly so, so that the authorities would not come down on them so, that they might be able to express their unity with one another, even in the midst of their diversity. All the more important what Paul is telling these Romans here. Maybe not so much captured in our day and age because we come to the church even though this is just the building. You're the church. And when we come together here, we often can see some level of unity occurring. But the challenge for us is even beyond that. It's the ministry of the body day to day. It's the ministry of the body week to week. It's the ministry of the body when we are not inside this building that is so much all the important and to be emphasized. Now I want to get to... Outline point number three, and I want to do that now. The character, the, the, excuse me, the categorized functioning of the body. These are character qualities, these are functions, these are ministries, these are roles. And I want to do a little bit of explaining because I think it's maybe a little bit misunderstood, even the way it's translated, even here in the ESV. Notice verse six. Having, and instead of gifts, charismata, I think again, Because there is such, in our English context, a temptation to believe that this is talking about special abilities. Maybe we should translate it better. The idea of having ministry functions, having ministry functions, Paul says that differ according to the grace given to us. There's that God centeredness again. And then I would leave out that supplied verbal idea here from the ESV. Let us use them because that's not in the original text. And let us use them, I think, furthers the problem of this idea of being tempted to think that there are special abilities. Leave that out. I think the verb is already supplied for us in verse five, having ministry functions because he says we are the one body in Christ. That's that Declaration. That's that verbal idea. Having ministry functions because we are the one body of Christ. They are going to differ according to the grace given to us. Colon. And here are those gracious opportunities, those ministry functions and roles that we've been given if prophecy in proportion to our faith. If serve us in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I think that's a much better idea. I think that this particular set of verses, verses 4 through 8, is one sentence. Not two. And I think that's important because... You can get the idea that verse 6 is beginning a new thought, but I don't think so. I think it's a subordinate idea of the whole thing. In fact, if you wrapped up verse 3 with that idea as well, because of that little four connector word in verse 3 and the little four connector word in verse 4, All of it is a unit of thought, one unit of thought with many ideas for by the grace given to me as an apostle, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think that that means to be humble, to think with sober thinking, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned for no break in the idea for as in one body. There's our unity. We have many members. That's our diversity. And members don't have all the same function. We're diversely doing ministry in our roles. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. There's our unity. Even though we're individuals, we're actually members one of another, having gifts, having ministry functions, having roles, having assignments that differ according to the grace given to us, colon, and then the list. That's much better. It moves us away from thinking of this list as special abilities. And it moves us into the concept, as it should be, that while we have unity, there is diversity. And while we have diversity, this differing kind of ministry assignments will be, and he lists seven of them there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and this promotes our unity even in the midst of our diversity. That's... That's what he's saying here. And what are those ministry functions? He speaks of those seven categories. And that's why I've listed it as the categorizing of the functioning of the body. These, these, aren't, these aren't special abilities, my beloved. They, they aren't special abilities that are bestowed on you at your conversion that you either didn't have before and for which at conversion you have now this supernatural ability, the gift of so-and-so, the gift of so-and-so, so that you can then minister what I said last time is you are the gift it's not that you have a gift even though God has graciously given us all things so if you want to say you have a gift sure it's all been given to us by God they're all grace gifts but the gift itself is you as the person the body of Christ is made up of gifts and the gifts are the opportunities and the ministries and the roles that you and I have in the body, and what are those roles? Well, he gives us seven of them here. Prophesying, serving, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, and acts of mercy. Those are the representative list he gives here. He gives some others in 1 Corinthians 12. He gives some others in Ephesians 4. He gives the two generic categories in 1 Peter 4 of speaking and serving. Here he gives us seven representative categories. And I want you to notice how easily Paul is able to shift between speaking of the people, the gifts, the people gifts who are taking these opportunities to minister to others like prophets or the ones teaching or the ones exhorting or the ones leading, as well as slipping in simply the pointing out of the opportunities themselves like serving. Like doing acts of mercy. You wouldn't say teaching, exhorting, mercying. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. He's so fluid, he can move in and out of the gifts and the opportunities to express those gifts. It's a generic list. And the first one that he has listed here is prophecy or prophesying. Now, with all due respect to our wonderfully competent friend Wayne Grudem, who has popularized the idea in our day and age that this concept of New Testament prophecy has to do with someone receiving a mental impression from the Lord, which is then to be spoken to others in the congregation for their edification. I don't think that's what prophecy is, and I don't think that is what Paul is referring to here. He and others believe that the ministry of prophesying is still occurring today and that the Lord is giving individual Christians within local church congregations the ability to hear a prophetic impression to communicate the Lord's will and purposes via a person in the congregation toward others. And I don't think that that's what Paul is saying here. I don't think that's the New Testament gift of prophecy. I believe that New Testament prophecy is that which is precisely what constituted Old Testament prophecy. God gave prophets, both in the Old and New Testaments, a foretelling and a forthtelling what God wanted supernaturally and miraculously for people to know. He wanted them to know and understand His will and His purpose for their present lives and for their future lives. And that prophesying would come directly to that person infallibly from God Himself. And therefore, it was a binding and authoritative revelation just as binding and authoritative as Scripture itself, scriptural revelation. And yet, once that prophetic voice, that last voice died out in the first century, there wasn't a need for any additional prophetic word, mainly because the totality of God's written revelation had been completed. There wasn't any need for any continual revelation. But, of course, Paul not having completed even from his own pen under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, all the rest of the New Testament speaks of prophecy here. And the Romans, of course, were to utilize it. And that's why he says, if prophecy, then prophesy according to or in proportion to our faith. Paul's going to go on and write later Revelation, which will then be inscripturated into the written canon And yet, right now, this prophecy was vital. And he says that it must be done in proportion to our faith. What does that mean? Well, this concept of proportion, analogia, could mean something similar to what I showed you in verse 3 when Paul says we ought to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Maybe it's talking about that, And it's saying, Paul speaking to those who were prophesying, that you ought to prophesy according to the faith that God has assigned you. Your subjective faith in Christ to the measure of that. Or, it could mean something like this. Remember I told you that that word measure, in that concept of measure of faith, has to do with a standard or a rule. And that's what I think it probably means here. And it's referring to this. That if a prophet is to speak in that first century to those folks in a congregation like Rome. He's to speak, as it were, through or by the standard or the measuring rod of the apostolic doctrine or teaching. In other words, he is not to teach beyond or against the apostolic teaching of those who were chosen by the Lord to lead the church. It's the standard, it's the measure, it's the rule, it's the practice of all prophets to be evaluated in their prophecy, to be subject to the prophets and the prophets being subject to the apostles so that nothing beyond apostolic doctrine is to be spoken. Why was there a need for that? Well, think about it. There were supposed Old Testament prophets and there were, of course, supposed New Testament prophets and not all of them were genuine. And some of them, just like false apostles, were coming along and saying, we have a word from the Lord. And they would speak this word and if it didn't go along with the apostolic doctrine, then it wasn't to be received. It was to be rejected. That's what I think he's driving toward here. And while I can't be dogmatic on this, I tend to think that Paul, with his very, very important word about the prophetic being capable of, I think, huge misunderstanding of people in the fellowship. I mean, wouldn't you and I, if prophecy was available today, and if that was genuine and valid, and if it was in addition to scriptural revelation, somebody in the fellowship standing up, somebody talking, maybe even somebody teaching, and they would say something very specific and very very applicational to the congregation maybe even to a single individual about what the lord's will or purpose or plan or future is for them that could become potentially very confusing could be misunderstood and if the man isn't a true prophet would be wrong could even be something against the apostolic teaching and so paul says watch out by the standard of apostolic teaching Don't veer from the analogy of faith passed on from the apostles themselves. You must present a unified standard so that the church is built upon a proper foundation. Thomas Schreiner says this, "...the spontaneous and charismatic nature of prophecy opens the door to fanaticism and enthusiasm which subvert the standard of apostolic teaching." If this interpretation is correct, prophecy must fall within the bounds of the norms of the faith. You can't have somebody just going off and saying, I've got a prophetic word from the Lord. And if it differs from the apostolic teaching, it's to be rejected. In fact, turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And this is what I believe happened to the issue of apostles and prophets and why it isn't extant today. I think I alluded to this last week. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. We're one in Christ. That's our unity again, according to this subsection of chapter 2. And he says, both Jews and Gentiles are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Those two offices... Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom Christ as the cornerstone and with the foundation laid upon the apostles and prophets in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And it's continuing to grow and we are living stones according to Peter in 1 Peter 2 in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Folks, once you have the foundation laid, you don't need to lay the foundation anymore. It's already been laid. That's why we don't need apostles and prophets anymore. But in that time, and in the Roman church, there was prophesying going on. But it needed to be according to the standard of apostolic teaching. You remember Acts 2.42? It says the very foundation of the church was that they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So, very important. And once that teaching became inscripturated in a written revelation that we know as our Bibles, then that prophecy, that prophesying, that gift, that office was no longer necessary. Just like the apostolic office. Those twelve, and then Paul, were those who laid the foundation. The foundation doesn't need to be laid anymore. So, that's the first. And it may even be that prophesying here, as number one, might be the heading on the list, If you look at 1 Corinthians 12, you look at Ephesians chapter 4, you tend to see those ideas of that which came first chronologically. Apostles and prophets and teachers, evangelists appearing first in these kinds of lists. And then he goes in what I would consider a very generic or general categorizing of these representative lists of ministry opportunities like here in Romans 12. And the next one is serving. Do you see it there? Serving. Paul says if you... If you see opportunities for ministries of serving, then by all means, humbly serve. Don't wait until you you have the gift of serving. You see how that special abilities view hedges against this idea? Just find out opportunities to serve and then humbly serve. We're all going to see differing service opportunities, he says, but we should serve so as to demonstrate our unity in that service. The path to true unity will include genuine acts of service. Can you imagine how unified we would look to the world if everyone were doing everything they could to outserve one another? I'm all about outserving one another. Because I want to show the world the unity that we have as Christians and that we're not all just about fighting with one another. We're not all just about centering in on our diversity in our ministries and giftedness. Not so. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And one of the things, one of the ways that you can do this is to humbly serve where needed. We're all one body in Christ. Find out where the needs are in this one body of Christ and then serve. And since the members don't have all the same function, though we are many and individually members one of another, we look for ways to express our love and our service toward one another. Yes, it is true that diakonia, this word for serving, has inherent within it the idea of an official office in the church known as deacons. Yes, that's true. But I don't think that's what Paul is referring to here. I think he's referring to all kinds of serving official or otherwise. Deacons with a capital D or deacons with a small d. Everybody's serving. Everybody can and should serve. Don't assume that you don't have the so-called gift of serving. You know, if someone were to express a need or if you were to see a need with your own eyes, don't back away from that saying, well, that's not my gift. I mean, we, we would even say something like that and we would almost... Recoil in our own hearts because we know that if there's a need out there, we ought to go meet that need, right? There's a need, go meet it. Don't think that you're in violation of Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4 or 1 Peter 4 when you see a need and you need to go out and meet that need. Whether or not you perceive you have the quote-unquote gift of serving or not. Assume you have been commanded to serve in the body in any way that you can and in whatever way you see a need. Thirdly, teaching teaching. Now, yes, again, there is an official sense there are gifted men like deacons, as I mentioned, and this could be referring to the office of teachers. And it's, since it says the one who teaches to Daskalia, but it's not limited to that. We're not forced to exclusively take it that way. In fact, because I think it's generic here, I think he's referring to teacher with a capital T and teachers with a little T. It's taken generically here. Any any ministry function of serving industry any ministry function of teaching yes it's it's true that there are pastors and teachers who are to be teachers of the word of god according to ephesians 4:11 yes there are elders and overseers who are to refute unsound doctrine according to titus 1 which is a form of teaching of course and protecting yes All of those things are true. Yes, those are official ways of serving. And yes, yes, those are gifted men to serve in that way. Called, examined, yes. But isn't it true that Scripture also commands that older women are to teach younger women how to love their husbands and to love their children, according to Titus 2? That's a teaching. That's a ministry of teaching. That's a need. And isn't it true that older men are to be discipling younger men, according to 2 Timothy 2, 2? Yes, of course, passing along the faith, passing along the living, the wise living of the Christian life. Isn't it also true that there is teaching like Paul talked about, exhorting teaching in First Thessalonians chapter two, as a father would implore his own children. You're to teach your own children. If you're a dad, if you're an older son, you can teach younger sons in your own household you're someone who is ministering in the body, you can teach in the nursery, you can teach in children's ministry, you can teach in student ministries, you can teach in informal ways, you can teach a Bible study, you can just teach another person, meet together in a discipleship relationship one on one. There's no. There's no idea here that says you can't do this ministry unless you have the gift of teaching. There's nothing that says that at all. In fact, in Colossians chapter 3, it says we are to teach and to admonish one another with hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, right? It's all of our teaching ministry. We're all teaching. In fact, you might even be able to say it like this. We're all teaching or we're being taught. That could be bad teaching. It could be bad modeling, but we're being taught. Teaching, that's a premium here. Yes, we may differ according to the grace given to us, and there may be somebody who appears to be very, very adept at teaching, but it doesn't mean that those who don't appear in someone's mind to be adept at teaching aren't teachers. Not at all. We're all to teach, we're all to take opportunities wherever we find them. Find a bunch of kids and start teaching them. Start teaching grandchildren if you have them and if you have not done so already. It's a teaching ministry. All of the years, all of the gray hairs, all of the opportunities, all of the stumbles and bumbles that you've made in the Christian life, that's something that somebody ought to learn from, even especially the people closest to you. I've encouraged my, my mother-in-law and my own mother, write my children letters. Tell them of all the ways that you have had both successes and failures in the Christian life. Leave a legacy for them. I think Don Whitney also mentioned that when he came last. Talking about leaving a legacy. Writing your testimony of faith in Christ out. It may even be not for your children or grandchildren, but for your great, 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 great grandchildren. They find in the attic your personal testimony written down and put in a box somewhere and somebody reads that maybe they come to faith in Christ. That's all teaching. And then fourthly, he says here, exhorting. The one who exhorts in his Exhortation, Paraclesis, Paraclete, one called alongside. Again, this could be something more specific. It could be the official sort of ministry of a teacher who exhorts. That's certainly true in the first century. I mentioned 1 Thessalonians 2:12. Paul did exhort as a pastor, as a spiritual leader. But again, this is a very general word, very general word in the New Testament. It could refer to any kind of exhortation, any kind of encouragement. Given to another could mean an appeal, a request, an urging. You are just trying to come alongside someone. Could even be backing away from the idea of just a a teaching, an exhortation, an urging, an appeal. Could just be coming alongside to comfort, to console. Just to come alongside someone. Several people wrote me cards and... Letters and emails this week just trying to come alongside me and encourage me, and I appreciate that so much. You don't know how much that encourages a pastor's heart. You don't know that when the study and the hours and that sweet solitude, as rich as it is when you're studying, as lonely as it is because it takes hours and hours and hours, and you're doing it sometimes in all hours of the night based on the ministry demands on any given week, and you get some kind of email, you get something in the mail. You get a phone call, you get something that says, keep going, keep going, keep going. You don't know what an encouragement that is. Consoling me, comforting me, exhorting me, urging me on. That's such an encouragement. Find somebody to encourage. Find somebody to exhort. Yes, there's a prophetic role. Yes, the Romans needed that. Yes, there's a teaching role. Yes, the Romans needed that. Yes, there's an exhortative role, and the Romans needed that. But there was all kinds of generic exhortations that were needing to be, to be going on in the church. You and I, as individuals, may not know hardly anything other than the small circle of people in our sphere of influence just around us. And we need to exhort them. But do you realize there are probably other people outside of our sphere of influence that needs that encouragement Just the more so that you and I, if we know of it, or maybe we know somebody who's in somebody else's sphere of influence and we go to them and say, hey, go and encourage so-and-so. I don't know exactly what's going on. I don't even know that there are any problems, issues, but they probably need our comfort. They probably need our exhortation. Yes. Are you looking for opportunities to exhort one another? See, this is the ministry function of the body. Don't just assume, well, I don't do exhortation because I don't have the gift. Yes, you do. You are the gift. Be an exhortative gift. Look for ways and means to comfort and encourage and urge. People need it. Do it in humble love and they'll bless you for it. Giving. Next on Paul's list. Giving. The one who contributes in generosity. Again, we don't know if this specifically means functioning in capacity that you are generous with your money. Or if this is talking about contributing material needs, just showing up and saying, I'll give you a helping hand. Do you need to move? Do you need to move from one house to another? Do you need to move something in your yard? Do you need yard work? Could be, do you need funds? The poor among us could mean that we are talking about anything from the idea of money all the way through to material goods to anything at all. And he says, if you contribute, whatever this contribution is, financial or otherwise, whatever you see the need as being, meet it with generosity here. Or it might even be translated simplicity. If it's simplicity, it may be something like this. Whatever needs are out there, generically speaking, serve in simplicity. Don't do it with the idea that you're to the rescue and that people need you. And that you're all about helping others so that they might say about you, you're such a helper. Now, just serve in the simplicity of the pure motives of your heart as much as they can be when other people have needs and you see those needs and you want to meet them. Simplicity. Or if it is to be translated generosity, it's be generous in your giving toward others, your contributions toward them, whether it be financial or otherwise. A lot of people have a lot of needs. A lot of people are going through financial crises. A lot of people don't know where their next meal is coming from. A lot of people don't understand how to pay their bills. Maybe you could come alongside somebody and be a financial planner, a financial helper, an accountant, an accountability partner. Maybe it's someone who you know has some kind of need and you want to do it with such generosity, but you don't want them to think that you are thinking more highly of yourselves than you ought. Send it anonymously. I myself have been the recipient of some wonderful, anonymous gifts. I still don't know who they are, but God does. God knows who they are. God be praised. See, that's what you do. You just say, God be praised. Or do you you know who it is. Bless them, Lord. And if they want to bless me in the future, praise God. Right? And then you take the opportunity after that to bless somebody else because you've been shared with a generous gift. You turn around at some point when you are blessed and you share that with somebody else. Anonymously so, if you must. This is all about our ministry to one another. You say, no, can't do that. Can't do it. Don't have the gift of giving. You see how those special abilities idea so warps our concept that if you see a need, go meet it. You say, but I don't have any money. Wait till you do and then give it away. This is crucial to our ministry to one another. And then he says leading. And I would again assume that he isn't restricting the ministry opportunity to those who are officially leading the church. I think this is any kind of leading. It, of course, could include those who are in the official places of leadership. I don't think Paul is limiting that category to these kind of men. If he is restricting it to the official leading within the church, then Tom Schreiner wisely states this. Paul emphasizes that one who leads should do so with diligence. Those who lead should be diligent, zealous, responsible, and not flag in their ministry. Leaders are more prone to laziness than others simply because there may be no one exercising oversight of them. Thus, they may be able to skate by with less than a zealous effort. And you know, I would say that's, that's true. I've seen men in ministry positions of leadership, and because they're not held accountable like those within the congregation, are generally held accountable. They contend not to to have people know what their schedules are, not to be doing a diligent work. Often, as you know, if it's a preacher, it shows up in the laziness of the pulpit, not being prepared. Sometimes it can be laziness through the week. Sometimes it can be elders not serving and shepherding the flock with care and with diligence and with love. Or if it's not talking about an official leader in the church, it might be talking about any kind of leading. And that could be generic enough that if you find any kind of need and you want to rush to meet it, you take the initiative and you lead it to the glory of God. Whatever it is, I see a need over there, I'm going to lead out. I'm going to be the first person that steps out front. You know, when you have that line of people, they all lined up and they say, okay, those of you who want to do such and such, please step ahead. And everybody except one guy steps one foot backwards, right? That's not leadership. It's somebody who is initiating the opportunity for you and me to have our needs met. That's leading. That's all it is. You say, well, I don't assume that I have the gift of teaching unless I'm a pastor or an elder, or a Bible study teacher. I can't lead this. I can't do this. Not so. Not so, yes. It's always going to be underneath the understanding and the affirmation of the leadership. But everybody can find a need to meet it. And he says, do it with zeal. Zeal, zealous. In fact, if you're studying with me in the English Standard Version, you see that marginal note there in Romans 12.8? It gives an alternate translation of the one who gives aid. Maybe that's better. Maybe it moves its way out of the leading kind of category into simply the one who gives aid. The one who leads out in giving aid to one another. And that certainly signals for us that anyone who sees a need can come to the aid of that person in need and we're to do it, he says with zeal. Be zealous. Zealous in the meeting of someone's needs. You take the lead in that effort and you don't assume that everyone else is far more capable than you are and you don't have the spiritual gift of leadership. No, you take the lead. You take the initiative. doesn't always have to be with a bunch of superstructure around it. doesn't always have to be, well, i got to check with all these people first and i got to go through the process. No, sometimes it's just a matter of seeing a need and taking the initiative to meet it. That's what a leader does. I love it when... Someone comes along and there's a ministry need that's expressed or there's something that somebody perceives whether it's a leader in the church or not and somebody just steps forward and says, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll take that on. I'll take that on as a ministry. I love that. That's leadership. That's zealousness. And then he says finally, acts of mercy. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And it may be that he ends this list with the most generic of all. Just any acts of mercy. And you do it with cheerfulness. Whatever way that you can perceive that someone is in need of your merciful hand, you do it with cheerfulness. Don't look around you in the body of Christ and do what's begrudgingly necessary. Well, I guess I'm going to have to be the one to do it. Man, I wish somebody else would step up to the plate. seems like I'm always the one doing this. No, you say, you know what? I've been given grace. Because I've been given grace, it's all the more opportunity for me to step forward. It's just another tangible expression of the grace of God in my life. Yes. I'm going to step up to the plate. Mercy Ministries, my friends, are all around us. People are in need financially, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, socially, materially, geographically, whatever. They need our help. They need our mercy acts of mercy with cheerfulness he says and you say but where do i start well look at look at verse 9 look at verse 9 of chapter 12 here's where you start let love be genuine abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good love one another with brotherly affection that'll get you started outdo one another in showing honor isn't that great outdoing one another in showing honor And what is some of the greatest kind of honor? Reaching out and meeting somebody's need mercifully. That's honoring them. That's saying, you're in need, you're created in the image of God, and because you're created in God's very image, I want to outdo everybody else in showing honor, even to those who might be perceived as the least of our members. He says, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We'll find out what all those mean next time. But I'll tell you, this is a great, great series, a list, a set of categories about ministry functions. Forget about the idea, I've got to find out what my spiritual gift is. Who is the gift? You're the gift. You're God's gift to the body. Serve as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the world. You know, if you are ministering in the context of the body, the spiritual body of Jesus Christ, are you going to have time to be conformed to the image of this world? I don't have time for the world. I've got too much time on my hands to serve in the ministry of the body. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How? Because it's all about me and my mind thinking of ways where I'm not so high upon myself and I'm not looking down on others. See, it's all humble love, ministering, serving in the strength that God supplies. Oh, may we minister as a church like this. And then watch people as they say "They, they must be Christians because they have love for one another. Let's do so in the power of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are so convicted. This is what Your Word does. It convicts us and it challenges us in so many ways. Lord, where do we start? Oh, I suggest we start With humility, humbly loving, seeing where needs are needing to be met. Father, change us. Make us people who aren't so hung up on what our spiritual gift is so that we could readily realize we are that gift and that we're deploying deploying our own ministry function, whatever grace You've given us, to the meeting of the needs of others. Oh Lord, may it be so. May this church, our church, the Bible church, be known for how they love one another and how they meet one another's needs. Why? Because we are the one body of Christ, and individually members one of another. To Your praise we humbly serve. In Jesus' name, Amen.